0: T-minus 31 seconds, the handoff has occurred.
1: With support from the Climate Kick 25. Alumni Association, Activated. welcome to The Elephant. 13, I'm Kevin 13, Kaners.
0: 12, 11, 10, 9, 8, go for main engine start, Six, five, four, three, two, one, and zero and liftoff of Space Shuttle Atlantis, reaching the crest of its historic achievements in space.
1: How many of us had the dream, when we were growing up, of one day becoming an astronaut? It's a dream I definitely had. After all, it's without question one of the coolest jobs in the world. Not only do you get to be involved in work that's pushing the frontiers of humankind's abilities and knowledge, but you get to escape the very bounds of Earth. With the help of enormous rockets, you blast off, reaching speeds of 28,000 kilometers an hour. You race around the Earth and get to go where only a few select humans have ever been before. But you know, then we get older. We become more practical. Everyone, after all, wants to become an astronaut. So most of us forget about our whimsical childhood fantasies and set even the wildest of our dreams on more realistic horizons. But of course, NASA does exist, and some people actually do get to go into space and earn that most coveted job title of astronaut. Pierce Tellers is one of those rare people for whom the dream actually worked out for. for Hi Pierce, it's Kevin, how are you? I'm great, Kevin, where are you? I'm in Berlin. Oh geez, Uh, have you just
2: come out of a nightclub straight into this, isn't
1: Born, raised, and educated in the United Kingdom, Pierce Sellers moved to the United States in 1982 to take a job as a research scientist for NASA. But while he was happy working as a scientist, he always had his eye on space. And after becoming a U.S. citizen and applying every year he could, in 1996, he was one of the select few accepted into NASA's astronaut program. So Pierce, you went into space three different times, right? Mm -hmm. That's correct, yeah. And, like so many of us, being an astronaut was also a childhood dream of Pierce's.
2: Absolutely. You know, when I was seven years old, uh, Gagarin got launched. When my dad explained to me how this guy was flying around the world at incredible speed, in and out of darkness, he was very excited about it. Man had his first great success in space when the Russians pushed a man across the threshold. He was Yuri Gagarin, the astronaut the Russians
0: lionized as the first to orbit the Earth. It
2: was the... And um, and I thought, gosh, that, that that's that's cool. That's the first thing I remember about it. I would like to do that. But, uh, you know, I had the luck to, to grow up as a kid, you know, as a small kid, up to the age of 13, watching the space race to the moon.
0: We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because
2: they are easy. And I collected but because every article out of the papers and, you know, researched it as well as I could. We didn't have Google in those days, you know, you had to <laughs> you had to go and find it yourself. But I absolutely fell in love with this whole program and this whole adventure. How difficult, how dangerous it was, how it was basically exploration into a domain of our generation and you know, subsequent generations. Space is our new ocean that has never been crossed. And I thought, this is wonderful. I would love to do that. And it, it motivated me to study science at school. It really did. So, you know, if I never got to be an astronaut, I would have been a very, very content and happy scientist. I really would have. I was, I was having a great time. But it was just icing on the cake and good luck that I got the chance to, to be one. And it turned out to be wonderful too.
1: Pierce Sellers flew three missions in space before retiring from the astronaut program in 2010. And we'll come back to his career as an astronaut shortly. But first, let's turn to the job that Pierce Sellers does currently, because the role he plays at NASA these days is directly related to understanding climate change.
2: I have one of the best jobs in the world right now, for a bureaucrat anyway. I'm division director for Earth Sciences, which is in NASA Goddard Space Flight Center. And that's a group of about 1,600 people.
1: So, Pierce Sellers is the director for NASA's Earth Sciences Division. And the Earth Sciences Division is the department at NASA which studies how the complex, dynamic systems of our planet function and how they relate to one another. Things like the biosphere, the atmosphere, and the oceans. Now, we naturally think of NASA as the organization whose business is outer space. But the mastery of rockets and the sophisticated engineering, which allowed us to get to the moon, didn't just give us the chance to better understand the universe out there. It also gave us vast new capabilities to study and understand the nature of our home planet as well. And that's thanks to the magic of satellites. Before the satellite era, all scientists could ever do was examine what was happening on tiny sections of the earth, a plot of a few hectares, say, and try to do their best to understand what was going on there. But satellites revolutionized our ability to study the Earth. They gave us for the first time the ability to see patterns and observe changes that were taking place on the scale of entire continents. They allowed us to see the big picture, in other words, the macro-level happenings here on Earth. For example, suddenly with satellites, scientists could tell exactly how quickly the Arctic sea ice was diminishing.
2: So we've been tracking how the Arctic sea ice has been diminishing since 1979. No other way, by the way, to tell how the ice cap is changing, except with satellite data. You know, how many grad students would you need to go out there in kayaks to measure where the ice age is? We can see it exactly from
1: space. And because it relies so heavily on satellites, Earth systems is a relatively new field.
2: You know, if you really think about it, the Earth system science is a new science. It didn't really start until about 1995, when we started getting more and more satellite data and our models started to improve to the point where we could believe them.
1: So NASA has a fleet of about 20 satellites, which are orbiting the planet and monitoring through their instruments exactly what's happening here on Earth. And these satellites are taking measurements on basically every natural process here on Earth that you can think of.
2: So these satellites, what do they tell us? Okay, well, let's start with the easy stuff first. Ice, snow, precipitation fields around the world, cloud fields around the world, ocean temperatures, ocean circulation,
1: photosynthesis on the land, photosynthesis in the ocean.
2: Every single component of the
1: Earth's system. But that means that they're getting a tidal wave of information and measurements every day. But what is it that they actually do with all that data?
2: Well, there's two things, two main tasks here that we, NASA, do. One is monitoring the world. You know, just checking the state of the world almost uh, daily, looking for changes, looking for trends, looking for changes in trends. So, you know, monitoring the world, checking for surprises is one big deal. The other thing we're doing, of course, is constantly improving our models. And that's based on basic science, it's based on observations, It's based on field work, it's based on aircraft measurements, you name it. For example, we saw in the Arctic sea ice a long, slow decline in the sea ice extent, you know, it was going down slowly, and then suddenly a break in the curve where it started thinning more quickly. And we think we understand that now, but our models predicted that that break in the curve would happen much later than it did. And then we have a, a climate modeling group, among other things, that uses this and then projects forward in time to inform us about what future climates will look like for the Earth. Because, as you know, there's a variety of different possible future climates depending on what we humans do, how much carbon dioxide we emit. So those two things, checking on the world as it is now, and trying to do a better job of predicting the future world.
1: And that last part is pretty important, because to name just one thing, That's what will help us predict how much sea levels will rise in the next 100 years, so that we can start preparing and work to minimize the damages.
2: So it's a very busy place. It's a lot of fun, a lot of people working very hard.
1: So Pierce Sellers has been directing the Earth Sciences Division at NASA, helping oversee the research, which is doing the important work of better understanding our planet's natural systems and how these systems are responding to climate change. And climate change is a study that naturally deals with years and decades. It requires us to think in the long term. And climate scientists, as a result, tend to take the long view. But time is relative. And a few months ago, Pierce Sellers received unsettling news. News of the type that, in an instant, casts the nature of time in a new light. After feeling unwell for a few months, last fall, Pierce went to the doctors and got some tests done. And the diagnosis, when it came back, revealed that he had stage 4 cancer. I asked Pierce if you could take us back to that moment.
2: Um, you know, I was here in, in D.C. I, I wasn't entirely surprised. I had been, been feeling rotten for a, for a while. Uh, and You know, I didn't think it would be as serious as it turned out to be, but there you go, that's life, right? Um,
1: and can I ask how long the doctors gave you?
2: Well, about, about a year, year and a half. Something like that. 500 days
1: is the way of look at it. It's hard to know how any of us would react to such devastating news, where we suddenly find out that the amount of time we have left is so much less infinite than we might have imagined. How would we, personally, choose to go forward? It's impossible to know in the abstract but I suspect I might choose to spend my time traveling, enjoying the company of friends and family, and do my best to enjoy the small comforts of life. But how Pierce reacted to the news isn't how you might expect. Instead of making plans to retire immediately and enjoy the rest of his time say playing golf or lying on a beach, he had a different reaction. So I got
2: over the, the shock in about 10 minutes and then started thinking about what I ought to do with the remaining time and uh, very quickly concluded that uh, really what I wanted to do was spend time with my family and friends and and do work. you know the work is, is fascinating, it's fun but it's also very important. So, you know, here I am back at work and actually having a great time. It's really wonderful.
1: And why have you made that decision? Spending more time working after receiving such such shocking news isn't what would strike most of us.
2: <laughs> well, because I sense I guess in some sense, you know, my the work that I do is not work in the in the common sense of the word. It requires, you know, labor and Effort and all the rest of it but it's incredibly interesting and the people I work with I'm fortunate enough to work with are really smart and they're committed and they're engaged and they want to solve this problem they really want to solve this problem they know how important it is to the whole world so you know I think we're, we're on our mission we are on a mission and uh, I feel like I'm part of it and I can contribute so here I am and uh, now I just feel the, the motivation to work harder and faster um, so, you know, we're trying to get as much as we can out of each day. Right now, I've got to tell you, I don't feel too bad. Um, you know, they've had some treatments which reduced discomfort and all the rest of it. So right now, I don't feel too bad. And coming to, coming to work is uh, not a problem at all.
1: So, Pierce Sellers made the decision to return to work right away as the director of the Earth System Science Division at NASA. And as I mentioned, before that, he was, of course, an astronaut, but he's actually had three careers of sorts, because originally when he started out at NASA way back in 1982, it was as a climate scientist. So, Pierce, is it true that when you first started working at NASA, it was as a climate scientist? That's right. And, and by the way,
2: with three careers, the secret of doing many things, as many people tell me, is to do them all badly. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, yeah, I was a climate scientist for about almost 20 years before I became an astronaut.
1: So from 1982 until 1996, Sellers worked on global climate problems, essentially working as one of the scientists that he now oversees. His work involved creating and improving the models of the global climate system to make them more accurate and more representative of the reality on the ground. These were the early days of climate modeling, and there were still many unknowns of how certain systems of the Earth related to one another climate models have to account for countless factors and complex processes. But what Pierce was interested in in particular was understanding how the biosphere, or the plant life on the continents, impacts what's happening in the air above, in the atmosphere and the climate.
2: The question we were looking at was how does the land surface play in the climate system? You know, how do, things, how do plants evaporate water back into the atmosphere and, you know, feed the, the cloud convection and rainfall fields? How does photosynthesis work in pulling down carbon dioxide in plants and trapping it? We found out, you know, there's great research that was going on at the same time that linked photosynthesis and evaporation in plants very tightly.
1: And the thing to keep in mind about how our planet operates is that we can't look at any one system in isolation. The atmosphere, the oceans, the biosphere, and the climate are all interrelated in highly complicated ways. And there's hundreds, even thousands, of feedback loops that one must take into consideration. So, for example, if we wanted to study clouds, of course we can do it. But clouds are impacted by the climate, the temperatures, and the plant life on Earth. And then clouds go on to influence the climate themselves. They can trap heat when it's cold out, and they can reflect some of the solar radiation back to the sun. They also, of course, impact the precipitation cycles, And precipitation can go on to impact the biosphere, as well as the currents of the ocean. So what we have is one complex dynamic system of interrelated parts, not quite unlike the human body with its different organs and systems. So if you want to understand one process about our planet, you really have to understand the dynamic it has with all the other active processes that are going on. And that's what Dr. Sellers and his team were able to do by looking at the biosphere and the climate and better understanding the complicated ways that these two systems interrelated with one another. And remember, this research that Pierce Sellers and others were doing at NASA was remarkably early in the scientific work on climate change. And so I was curious if he remembered the first time that he started to think seriously about the effect that humans were having on the climate.
2: Yeah, yeah, I do. I mean, you know, I was busy working on my PhD and stuff in the uh, late 70s and early 80s. And I didn't really become aware of the climate change papers that were written in the mid 70s by the sort of pioneers, you know, the, the, the grand men of this business, who were uh, Manabi, Weatherald, and Hansen. But I got hold of them pretty quickly as soon as I joined NASA in 1982. And I read all the papers uh, and, you know, listened to Kim Hansen's testimony to Congress in 1988.
0: This evidence represents a very strong case, in my opinion, that the greenhouse effect has been detected. And it is changing our climate
2: now. And it's amazing to me that the work that they did with very primitive models in the mid-70s sort of 70s onwards to the early 1980s, that work has stood the test of time. Their predictions for a warming, for a double CO2 atmosphere, for a warming between 1.5 and 4.5 degrees centigrade, you know, that's held up. I mean, these the, very early calculations have been remarkably robust.
1: You know, when I first started learning more about climate change really in depth, one of the things that amazed me was how many decades back both the research into our climate and the scientific warnings about what we're doing to it go. Uh, and, And as you just mentioned, even in their early stages, the predictions by the climate models have stood up remarkably well. And yet, despite that, here we are in 2016, and there's still a big debate, especially in America, of if climate change is even real. Do you find this surprising?
2: Yeah, you know, this is a very, very good point that you raise. It really is, you know, it's a serious problem for us. So I would say, you know, when you say there's a debate in the United States about this, not so much elsewhere in the world, interestingly, right? Not even in places like China. There's not much of a debate in the Chinese government about this. But there is is this, uh, I don't know, discussion in the US. Very clearly, there is no debate in the scientific community. It's done. I mean, the scientific community is solid in its conclusions. They've written it down. And, you know, by the way, it doesn't count unless it's written down. They've written it down in all these IPCC documents, you know, uh, over 25 nations participating. And it's very clear to all of the scientists in the world, bar a tiny, tiny sliver of, of people of dubious motivation, it's very clear from a scientific point of view that uh, the Earth is warming and that humans are the cause of it. So that's that part. So the so-called debate is really between what I would call, you know, the climate denier group and those who think that we're in trouble or in a bit of a pickle with climate. And the denier faction is not operating from a scientific basis at all. They're denying the science, okay, completely. They're denying the facts. They're denying the theory. They spend their time trying to create confusion. They spend their time actually... Trying to question the motivation and question the ethics of the scientists who are doing the work—it's, um, to my mind, these modern deniers are in the same bucket as, the say, people who were uh, working for the tobacco companies back in the old days. Um, you know, they—they're they're just trying to create a lot of confusion about what's going on. So it's a pseudo debate, to my mind. This is a rearguard action to try and extend the use of fossil fuels further forward in time and to sort of delay any. Government action, particularly in the U.S., to uh, react to the climate change problem.
1: And would you say the motivation is a sense of not wanting to deal with something inconvenient, something truly uncomfortable, or would you say it's actual interests, like monetary interests?
2: I think I think it's a mixture of both. Um, definitely, the monetary interest has played a part, as we've seen in recent articles that some scientists are being receiving money from you know special interests to take a position. And, and, and don't forget, this is a tiny handful of, of scientists, you know, just like the tobacco scientists who have been, you know, pulled on board to take this position. So, you know, this is not an even-handed debate. Don't forget, 97% of scientists, climate scientists, believe that this is a problem and that humans are the cause. That's 97%. Now, even back in the day, tobacco companies confronted by NIH, you know, National Institute of Health, and the whole scientific community in America that said that smoking was bad for you. Tobacco scientists were still able to drench up, you know, to sort of drag up a handful of scientists who said, no, no, smoking's okay for you, just keep going. So, same thing, same thing now.
0: Houston flight. Houston flight away, Capcom, go. Tell him we're ready to have him get out when he is.
1: But let's get back to space. Uh, Not only did Pierce Sellers get to be a crew member on three different shuttle missions and spend a combined 35 days in space, he also got to be part of an even rarer group, the 200 or so people in the history of the world who have ever spacewalked. And remember that spacewalking is when an astronaut actually goes outside of the orbiting space shuttle. Okay, I'm out. They do it as part of the essential work of installing new components on the station, as well as to make any repairs or adjustments that are needed. How many times did you get to spacewalk? Was it six times? Six times, yeah. So can you describe what it was like that first time that you got to open the hatch and leave the shuttle behind? I mean, I, I know you're, you're there to work. You're not there just to, to sightsee. But <laughs> Unfortunately, that's true, yeah. But can you take us back to that moment? What is it like that first time you spacewalk?
2: Well, yeah. When you're in the shuttle or the space station and you look out a window, it's a bit like looking into an aquarium. It's really amazing. You know, you see, see what's going on in there and you can see the curve of the Earth by getting a face right up against the glass. However, when you are spacewalking, you are in the aquarium, you are out there in the environment. It's just amazing. When you lean forward into your space helmet visor, you can't see the edges of the helmet, and it's just like being there, you know, hanging out in space, uh, watching the world go by beneath your feet. So I'll just give you a couple of pictures that I think the audience would find interesting. You go around the world every 100 minutes. That means you have 45 minutes of day, 45 minutes of night on every orbit. And so when you're doing a spacewalk, you go in and out of three days and nights as you go around the world. So you're flying around the world at five miles per second, looking at this beautiful blue curved ball below you during the day side. During the night side, you see all the cities you know, glowing away down there like beautiful little jewels. Just, just lovely. As you come out of night into day, you get a warning from the guys inside the space station. They say, hey, you know, sunrise coming up. 60 seconds. Check your visors. Because you want to flip down your gold visor that keeps out the sunlight. So you flip that down, you turn off your headlights. And I'm not kidding, you see on the horizon just the tiniest thin blue sliver in the blackness. Just a blue, blue sliver. And then suddenly the sun comes up. Bam! It's like a nuclear bomb or something. It's just this great white explosion on the horizon. And it starts climbing into a black sky in front of you. And it's going so fast that you can see it move. and You can see all the shadows on space station move. At the same time, a new day is sort of peeling towards you. From the horizon towards you, you see the world unfold again and roll towards you. Big blue oceans and clouds and things. Just staggering, it's a a real God's eye view.
1: That's such a powerful visual. I I can't imagine what it's like to actually experience it firsthand. I mean, many people who have gone into space have talked about that moment and how it changes one's perspective on our species and our relationship to the planet. I mean, I know you had already studied climate science, so maybe it was a bit different for you, but did you have a, a similar feeling or moment? Did it change your perspective at all?
2: It it was a bit different from me because I would spent so much of my life studying the Earth system. I had this intellectual understanding of it. But it was beautiful to see all the cogs and wheels in actual motion with my own eyes. I mean, I was looking at things like hurricanes and fronts and, and, you know, the greenness on the planet. Things I understood very well, had seen in satellite images, but to see it with my own eyes, you know, a thousand miles in every direction, was just... It was, it was wonderfully confirming, I think, of, of the science. You know, it was almost artist science. It was just the most beautiful thing to see. So i added a personal layer of appreciation on top of my intellectual understanding. But the other thing was that, you know, a lot of people say, oh, you know, I had a transcendental experience from going to space. That's not the case for me. Um, but leaving the planet and looking down on it did make me a lot fonder of it, I have to tell you. I mean, it's just like when you leave home, your irritating family becomes a lot more tolerable and attractive when you leave them leave them <laughs> behind. I thought, you know, this is a beautiful place. And all those seven billion down people, you know, we're, we're, we're all kind of related somehow. And we're all, we're all stuck on this one home. So we have to figure it out. We have to work it out. So I became, I guess, a lot fonder of my home and a lot fonder of all the people on it as a result of of going into space.
1: Which brings to mind what Carl Sagan said about our life here on this pale blue dot. Our planet
0: is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, There is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. The Earth is the only world known so far to harbor life. There is nowhere else, at least in the near future, to which our species could migrate. Visit? Yes. Settle? Not yet. Like it or not, for the moment, the Earth is where we make our stand. It has been said that astronomy is a humbling and character-building experience. To me, it underscores our responsibility to deal more kindly with one another and to preserve and cherish the pale blue dot, the only home we've ever known.
1: Carl Sagan's famous reflections on life on the pale blue dot. You know, one of the incredible things about going into space is that you do get that more visceral appreciation, as you say, of how interconnected, beautiful, and in some ways, how small the world is. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. But I also imagine that it gives you a chance to meditate on the infiniteness of the universe. And I listened to a discussion you had somewhere where you shared your thoughts on if there's life on other planets elsewhere in the universe. And you know, if there is life on other planets, would be a result of the particular atmosphere and environment on that planet, which would have to be a certain way. If it was a different way, there would either be no life or different forms of life that evolved. And I was wondering if you could just meditate on that for me, Right. that here we are, and we've come to the point as a species now, since the Industrial Revolution, where we're actually changing the very atmosphere and environment that we evolved out of. Right, well,
2: there's two two things, you know, in, in your question. One is, the whole business of uh, life on Earth and life on other planets, and then how we as uh, a developed uh, intelligent species are changing our own planet, you know, a little bit unfortuitously. Well, the first thing is, of course, we all love to think about life elsewhere in the universe. Um, You're right to say that, you know, our planet is tiny, tiny, tiny compared to the vastness of the universe. But, to be honest, and to be arrogant, um, life is the most complicated thing in the universe you know, from our perspective, life is the most precious thing in the universe, the most interesting and fascinating thing in the universe, so even though we're tiny, we're incredibly important. How about that? And I, I see the solar systems around suns as like the gardens of the universe, you know, sometimes you have a garden that's totally infertile, but, you know, maybe there's there's some that something is growing in, so this is the giant gardens that spin around the stars. Now, we're finding exoplanets, you know, planets around other stars, everywhere we look. And everywhere we can see, we're seeing these things pop out around stars. So there's no shortage of planets, as far as we can tell. I am sure that there is life out there. And actually, I'm pretty sure, depending how old you are, you might see life discovered on exoplanets during your lifetime. I.e., within the next 30 years, if you live that long. And that's because we'll have the capabilities to build giant telescopes that look at planets around other stars and may be able to detect signs of life in their atmospheres. So, you know, on our planet, somebody looking at our planet would see oxygen and methane in the our atmosphere, which are short-lived gases. They have to be continuously produced by something on the surface. Uh, in our case, life. And somebody looking at our planet would see those gases and say, Aha! Something is going on down there. And I think we're going to use the same trick, looking outwards. So I'm, I'm hopeful, I'm pretty sure that, that, that there'll be signs of life elsewhere. It will have evolved differently from us. It will look different from us, but um, I, I don't think that it will behave much differently from us. Because we find that life on Earth, even though it takes many different forms, it's amazing how convergent evolution is, and behaviors and uh, you know survival strategies don't vary much between species. So the other part of your question, yeah, you know, the business of industrialization of the earth and changing the earth's environment, Um, sure, you know, the industrial revolution has brought us incredible blessings, let's not forget. I mean, the creation of our modern civilization with all its benefits is due to the efforts of people over the last 250 years. It's wonderful. Look how long people live. Look how healthy they live. Look how exciting and interesting our lives are, that we can access information from all over the world. You can talk to anybody anywhere else in the world. The access to knowledge is almost infinite. It's, it's incredible. This is a huge advance. And then there's the small curses of civilization. Pollution, all right, and, and climate change. But I believe that the technology that's got us this far and the creativity and genius of people will get us out of this trouble. So the same technology and stuff that got us into trouble, we will use, we will transform to get us out of trouble, as long as we get on with it quickly.
1: You know, I find it quite surprising because what's clear from the comments you just made, as well as from thoughts that you've shared elsewhere, is that you seem quite optimistic that we can get ourselves out of this problem. But at the same time, I've heard you say elsewhere that the changes to our climate and the Earth's systems are happening faster than the models predicted. Not only that, but you've also said that it's likely that we're going to overshoot the two-degree target. And so when you think about the ramifications of what could happen as a result of us missing that target, the amount of damage and human suffering it will imply, I find it remarkable that you are able to remain so optimistic. Yes. Would you would you say you are a naturally optimistic person by nature, or...? I- or for what particular reason are you relatively <laughs> sunny that we can't get ourselves out of this problem?
2: Okay. Well, I am naturally optimistic, but I'm also, my optimism about this question is not, not just based on you know, the way I feel. It's based on um, some experience and you know some reading of history, I guess, more than anything else. So, yes, I do think we're going to overshoot two degrees, and that's just based on the sort of ballistics of the global economy. It's going to be very, very hard to apply a break on some of the fossil fuel burning that we're going to see in the developing countries, particularly. Uh, But we must must try hard. If we don't try hard and we start going, you know, north of two and a quarter degrees or two and a half degrees and start heading towards three degrees, we are in serious trouble. The three-degree world is very scary. Our models tell us it's very scary. And there could be surprises in the three-degree world that we can't anticipate. I think the two-degree world is something that we understand through our models. It's not pleasant. Some of the things are not pleasant, but I think they're manageable problems. I think they're manageable problems. So I'm optimistic that we can uh, apply the brakes on the other side of two degrees, hopefully well short of three degrees. I think that's possible, but we have to get on with it quickly.
1: In the op-ed that he wrote for the New York Times about his cancer diagnosis, Pierce Sellers also noted that there was no reason to believe that the future ahead of us is going to be worse than life today. In fact, it might even be better. For those of us dealing with climate change, something that could bring such devastating destruction and hardship, it can be hard to see the future as rosy. But life is full of contradictions, both at the macro and micro levels. And for an example of the odd way in which the good can come with the bad, the week that Pierce received his cancer diagnosis, the other side of the coin, the miracle of emergent life, was equally as present. I heard that the same week that you received your diagnosis, you became a grandfather for the first time. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's a, a boy or a girl.
2: It's a boy, Jack. Jack.
1: When you see Jack, what goes through your mind of what his future might look like or the type of earth he might live on?
2: Well, when my daughter produced Jack, I was absolutely overjoyed. I'm not kidding. And I see him and, you know, she is now invisible to me. She says, you know, uh, all I could see is the grandson. That's not true. Um, So I'm holding my my little grandson. He's absolutely beautiful. And he's always laughing and smiling and happy. And uh, and also extremely inquisitive and, and curious and interested in stuff going on around him. So, you know, he's a, he's a standard little human being, advanced primate. And I just think, I, you know, I just hope that we hand over a, a pretty good planet to him. And I'm sure that he and his generation will, will, will do the best they can with what we give them. But it's up to us. It really is up to us, to the people living now, particularly the older generation, uh, who have the power, frankly, uh, to hand over the car keys, you know, to a a habitable working planet.
1: So it's up to us. It's up to us that we make Jack's future livable and do the work of starting to turn that ship and change the course we're currently on as a species. And of course, both the seriousness of the consequences that we're working to avoid and the amount of change that needs to be achieved can seem overwhelming. The change, as we all know, is happening too slow. And even when change is happening, it can be hard to perceive. So how do we avoid wanting to give up in the face of such unpleasant-seeming odds? Can we actually create a sustainable world before it's too late? But maybe it's worth remembering that landing on the moon sounded pretty impossible, too, when it was announced in 1961.
0: Why does rice play Texas. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard.
1: There was no indication or promise that it could be done, or that it was within our abilities as a species. But by mobilizing the resources, genius, and collective creativity, we were able to make it happen and make the impossible possible.
0: that's one small step for man, one giant leap man.
1: Columbia, Columbia, this is Houston. Arguably, overcoming climate change will be a much bigger task than getting to the moon. It involves not just one technological or engineering achievement, but a transformation of all of human society. And unlike our achievements in space, the sustainability race we're on now won't be and can't be won by a desire for domination. This time, we'll either win together or lose together, and we'll only be successful if we find a way to put aside our differences and cooperate. But the good news is that unlike with the space race, this time, there's a role for all of us. It's not up to just a few thousand genius engineers. All of us can use our skills to work to make a positive impact in the communities and the societies that we're members of. From helping strengthen the local food movement to the activists working to create the political change necessary. The transformation can be done. It definitely can be done. What was once thought impossible has occurred sooner than expected countless times in human history. We copy you down, Eagle. Or as Pierce put it in his New York Times piece, history is replete with examples of us humans getting out of tight spots.
0: Nelson Mandela emerged from his long nightmare as a simple man, but his release meant probably more to the whole world than to the man himself.
1: As for Pierce, since he got his diagnosis about half a year ago, he's kept on working. A few months ago, in April, he traveled to Greenland, where he accompanied NASA researchers collecting data on how the continent's ice sheet is responding to the higher temperatures. And last month, Pierce received a Distinguished Service Medal from NASA, recognizing him for his decades of work for the agency and his profound contributions in effectively communicating the science and urgency of climate change to the public. So, he's been busy. And given the news he received a few months ago, he's feeling pretty at peace about things.
2: I am, I am. Let me tell you, you know, I've had the luck to have an incredibly rich, and um, not rich financially, let me point that out because I'm a civil servant. <laughs> you know, personally rich, experientially rich life. I've worked with wonderful people all through my life. I worked for NASA for all of it and I've just, you know, NASA is a fantastic place to work and the people here are amazing. Um, so I've had the, you know, the luck to have a really, really good life. And, you know, what's left of it, I intend to live to the fore um, and enjoy. Uh, so uh, no regrets. No complaints at all.
1: And if Pierce is able to come to a place of acceptance with such difficult personal news and yet keep on working, it seems like a great reminder for all of us concerned about those increasing CO2 levels to continue our efforts, to not give in to despair, and remember that change is possible and that remarkable things do happen. Well, Pierce Sellers, I really appreciate you joining me today and hearing your optimism despite what can be a, a very scary topic thanks so much for your work I, I hope you feel well and and thanks for joining us today thank you kevin good luck
2: roger the eva is progressing beautifully they're setting up the flag now i guess you're about the only person around that doesn't have tv coverage of the scene. That's all right.
1: That was my conversation with Pierce Sellers, the acting director of the Earth Sciences Division at the NASA Goddard Space Flight Center, and a former astronaut who went on three shuttle missions and walked in space six times. And that's it for the elephant this time. And actually, that's it for the elephant for the next little while, because the elephant is going to be taking a break. Don't worry, we're planning on coming back. But this is the end of season one. And now we're going to take the chance to reflect and retool as we prepare for our next season. We launched this podcast a year ago with the idea of doing thought-provoking interviews that would allow us to better understand the facets of climate change and the nature of the problem and everything from the politics to the science. And since then, we've covered a lot of ground and managed to speak with an enormous range of guests, including many of the most influential people working within climate change. We covered the UN climate talks in Paris, and we released 30 episodes. All in all, it's been a really fun journey so far, and if I may say so, a successful first season. So now we're gonna take a break and work on developing a second season. Our idea for season two is to leave the studio behind and go to the places where the efforts to do something about climate change are underway. You know, we know the problems But now, we want to learn about the solutions. And our plan is to investigate the creative ways that individuals, communities, and engineers from all across the world are working towards solutions. So that's the plan for season two. In the meantime, while we're off, we're going to be working on securing new sources of funding to allow us to make the new season a reality. And we'll be researching the stories that we want to bring you in the new season. So, if you have any tips for funding sources that may support us in our work, or know of a compelling person or group working on an inspiring solution to climate change that you'd like to recommend as a story, definitely be in touch. You can reach me at Kevin at elephantpodcast.org. You can always visit us through our website, elephantpodcast.org, where we have all of our episodes and interviews from season one. And to keep up to date with developments for season two, and to get advance notice of when we'll be returning be sure to like our page on facebook and to follow us on twitter where our handle is at elephant podcast lastly before i sign off i want to thank everyone who made season one possible first of all the project won't exist without matthias gutz who first believed in the idea and helped push it forward nor would the elephant have been possible without the critical financial support of the Climate Kick Alumni Association. And I'd particularly like to thank its president, Estefania Tapias, and the entire executive board, who together lent the podcast the backing it needed from the very beginning and championed it behind the scenes. Christina Peters and Patrick Chadwick both helped with the editing, research, and producing on early episodes, as well as Mervyn DeGaños. And I want to thank the entire organization of Climate Kick as well, who also lent their support to the show, with particular thanks to Dominic Hofstetter, Ibrahim Mohammed, and Mikkel Trim. Anyways, so that's it for now for The Elephant. So, sit back, enjoy the rest of your summer, and if all goes to plan, we'll be back in a few short months with Season 2. Until then, I'm Kevin Kaners. Thanks so much for listening, and for acknowledging with me The Elephant in the Room.